Hi, my name is Sharon Shimanova, and this is Chai Podcast. Ladies and gentle queens, I am here today with the one, the only, Yasmin Dreams, an educator and spokesperson who challenges societal norms of Ashkenormativity, Eurocentrism, and anti-Blackness through sharing her own unfiltered personal experiences and uplifting the voices of others who have for too long been silenced or moved to the margins of the Jewish community. Yasmin's corner of the internet, as she likes to call it, has accumulated an impressive 17.7 thousand followers on Instagram and has recently expanded to include a blog entitled Untold Jewish Stories that creates a space for people to come together, share their experiences, and educate themselves on the stories of others. She confidently identifies as a Mizrahi, Bukharian, and Ashkenazi Jew. She is New York City bred and a proud Brooklynite. Yasmin passionately spreads awareness about the importance of loving every part of yourself and the unique intersectional spaces that you exist in. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to do this with you. Oh, I'm so excited that you're here. Let's just hop right in. Firstly, I want to focus on introducing listeners to the complexity of your cultural identity. So I would really appreciate it if you could walk us through that, because I feel that that's like undoubtedly a large portion of your like overarching presence, both on social media and in the world more generally. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, okay, so ethnically, genetically, ancestrally speaking, my mom is 100% Ashkenazi. You know, her family fled Russia and Hungary. She lost, you know, about 35 people in the Holocaust. Very kind of common, well-known Ashkenazi story, right? A lot of Jews came to New York. So we've been in Brooklyn since like 1910. Mm -hmm. The family that didn't leave to Brooklyn, those are who unfortunately were killed in the Holocaust. But my Abba, my biological father, his father was a Syrian Jewish refugee who was basically rescued by one of the first youth Aliyah groups in 1943 when they rescued kids from Aleppo and from Lebanon. And my Abba's mother was actually in utero when her parents, so my great-grandparents, fled Samarkand, Uzbekistan. And so they are Bukharan Jews, and they had been there for as far back as we can tell. And I was raised, though, by my Ashkenazi mother and my non-Jewish Black father, so my stepdad, which created for me a very, very multicultural, multidynamic kind of situation. Yeah, of course. Because I didn't really grow up in a really Jewish home. My mom was very, very secular. And I stopped seeing my biological father at about 11. And before that, really, all I knew was that I was Israeli. I was not American. I was Israeli. I don't even remember him ever telling me I was Jewish, just that I was Israeli. But I grew up more submerged in my stepdad's culture, which was Christian and Black. So I celebrated Christmas. I celebrated Easter. And then as an adult, I reconnected with my biological father for a short period of time that didn't last long, but I was able to get all of my grandparents' stories. I was able to reconnect and really learn like what it meant to be Israeli, that it was way more than just, oh, your father was born in Israel, but my grandparents were saved by Israel. And by doing that, I was able to really decolonize my own identity, which sometimes can be really confusing because I love Hanukkah and I love Pesach, but I also love Christmas and I love Easter and I love Shabbat, but I love Sunday dinner. So it was really hard for me at first to reconcile that 
I could be have all of that as part of who I am because there are many children that are born into really multicultural, multiracial families. Um, and even though my stepfather's not biologically my father, that's all I knew growing up. So it's been a journey with that. I think that kind of explains it. Sorry yes. if I ran, <laughs> ran, ran off with that one. No, that's amazing. And I think that that kind of like seamlessly gets to the next point that I wanted to talk about, which was, I guess at what point, I think you, you partially touched on this in what you were just saying, but at what point did you kind of start combating that feeling of separateness from your identity as a whole and your Jewish identity? So around 2011, 2012, for a bunch of reasons, I reconciled with my biological father. And because of that, I felt like it was now okay for me to practice and have Shabbat and buy, you know, Hanukkah and like things like that. Whereas for some reason before, because of that trauma, I kind of separated myself from that Jewish identity, even though I still always identified as Israeli. I always was, you know, admitted I was Jewish if someone asked. When we reconciled temporarily, that almost made me feel like I had permission to do so. Now, once mm -hmm. we stopped talking again, I almost felt like I don't have a right to do that. But thankfully, this time when it happened, I had already made Jewish friends online who told me, no, you don't have to do that. Like, you don't have to tie everything that is Jewish or, you know, observant or, you know, Israeli to him. Like, that is your identity, regardless of your relationship with him. And so I struggled with that for a while because then I also felt like, okay, well, can I do that and still partake in the culture that I was raised in? And that is a majority of my family because not only was I raised by a black father, but my husband is black and my children and my siblings, I have brothers. And so I realized that sometimes my story, sometimes the way I dress, sometimes the way I talk, sometimes just my, my things that I do don't make sense to people within the community and sometimes outside because they grew up with a very narrow point of view of what it means to be a Jew. Yes, and exactly. and a very yeah, it's a very narrow and one-dimensional view of what it means to be Mizrahi or Bukharan or Ashkenazim. And I feel like my page is like a form of resistance against that narrative. So I slowly started to realize that I can wear my bamboo earrings and wear my mitbachat. <laughs> I can wear my magin and I can wear my double name nameplate. Like I can be all of the things that I am authentically together, whether people understand it or not. Right. That it's those parts of your identity don't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. Right. Right. And I feel like that's a really big part of what Chai Podcast is about because it's about combating the feeling that you're kind of betraying your traditional or more conservative roots in order to really embody who you are, um, mm -hmm. but that it doesn't necessarily need to be that way and that you can really be every single part of yourself without needing to compartmentalize or what have you, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I find it absolutely beautiful that you're able to fully identify as like Mizrahi, Bihari, and Ashkenazi Jew, because you are kind of in a space where I feel like it was a lot easier, would be a lot easier for you to just kind of just pick one and run with it. You know what I mean? Mm. I'd really love it if you took some time to like expand on how that's like to juggle all of those identities. It's just part of who I am. I mean, like, so I said, I grew up, you know, I was raised by my mom who's fully Ashki, but my mom also 
was married to my Abba. So, right. So my mom is like culturally Israeli. I mean, she lived for two to three years on a kibbutz in Israel. Hmm. So I grew up eating very Ashkenazim food and very Mizrahi Sephardi food. I grew up, I never heard Yiddish. My mother speaks Hebrew fluently, reads it fluently. Why she never talked to me in Hebrew, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> um, and growing up, I always identified as Sephardic because that's what most Syrian Jews identified as. As we learned that we didn't come from Spain with that group of Syrian Jews and we had the term Mizrahi, I reclaimed it and it just feels more authentic. I love Ashkenazi culture. I I, I do. Like it, the food, everything, it's part of who I am. But you've seen me. I'm very visibly Middle Eastern looking. And I'm not saying that there's not, I'm not saying that there's not Middle Eastern looking Ashkenazim. Obviously there's brown Ashkenazim, there's black, but in America, the majority of Ashkenazim you see are very pale, fair featured. And that's just not my experience. I grew up looking, oh, I had very short hair. I grew up looking like a little brown boy. <laughs> so <laughs> once I was able to connect with other Mizrahi Jews and Bukharan Jews, I was able to realize like, wait a second, that's why I look so different than my Ashkenazi family. My mom is gorgeous. Like my mom is gorgeous, but she has green eyes, very fair skin, and these red freckles all over her face. She's stunning, but I didn't see myself in her. And so owning all three parts of my identity has helped me to love all the features that I grew up hating about myself, my dark under eyes and my you know, very hairy arms and hairy face. I always liked being brown. That was never a problem. And I was super brown as a kid, but that just all in embodies like who I am. But I also love kefilte fish. And so like, I'll sit down to a meal and I can totally sit there and eat like baklava and mamun and then be like, oh, for lunch, we should have kefilte fish. Like, <laughs> it's just who I am. Like, I just love all of it. And I grew up eating all those foods. Sometimes, you know, when I'm relearning prayers I realized that I only know like the Ashkenazim version so I'm trying to learn a little bit more about how did my grandmother do this and am I you know my great Safa do this and I think it's just a matter of like reclaiming the parts that you're comfortable with that you connect with and still as an interfaith family my husband's actually like what's that word agnostic he doesn't actually believe in anything mm -hmm. but he's not an atheist so he just he has his own he has his own kippah like he just goes with the flow right it's pretty easy. He's like, I don't want a Christmas tree. And I'm like, well, I want a Christmas tree. Like I grew up going to Christmas dinner at my dad. My dad is my stepdad, his mother's house. And I, for me, Christmas is mac and cheese and cornbread and turkey necks and homemade, you know, sweet potato pie. I'm like, those, that for me is Christmas. And, and I don't want anyone to think that I have to abandon those really good parts of my childhood, especially just to get like a little personal I had a very traumatic childhood. My biological father was severely abusive. And the only father I knew was my stepfather. The only grandmothers that I didn't have a tumultuous relationship with was his mother and his grandmother. So like, why should I neglect those parts of my childhood that made me happy? Those were very, I had a really rough childhood. And those days that we were at his family's house were some of my best memories. So why do I have to neglect that? Because I've now decolonized and de-assimilated from American cultural norms. For me, Christmas is not about Christ. Christmas is not about Christianity. It's not about celebrating anything other than my family and the traditions that we had that made me very happy, if that makes sense. No, um, yeah, absolutely. That has always been part of my life. And I realized I don't have to let go of any of it, no matter who understands it, 
no matter who likes it. And I've had people tell me, oh, you're celebrating your oppressors. And I'm like, no, I'm really not. I, I'm just celebrating traditions and, and activities that have brought me so much joy. And I think anyone struggling with that, that's what you need to focus on is what makes you happy. Like life is about being happy. And as long as you're not hurting anybody, do what makes you happy. And if that means having a menorah and a Christmas tree, then go for it. Do it. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, I feel like that resonates a little bit with me because growing up, like we did all of the big Jewish holidays, all of the high holidays our family would participate in, but it was like to a certain extent, like my dad barely knows the bracha for wine or for bread. I think for bread, he's like completely, he has no idea what he's saying. And <laughs> it's, it's strange because what we've experienced here once like the, the ultimate transition to like living in the States was there were people who kind of just like abandoned religion and addressed it in the same way that they did back there in the old country where it was like, you're living in the Soviet Union, you're not practicing religion at all. Like my dad didn't have a bar mitzvah, my mother didn't have a bat mitzvah. Right. Judaism was kind of something that if you wanted to participate in, it would have to be heavy under wraps. So mm -hmm. when they came here, it was kind of like, this isn't really my main priority. But on the other hand, you had people who like clung at it and clutched at it with all their might because now they have this opportunity to practice it. And that's really a beautiful thing. But what has recently been happening is like there's a divide between these like two polar extremes almost. There's people who kind of resonate with my experience where it's like we participate in the high holidays and we do Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. We do every Friday dinner because that's tradition and that's family. And that's right. what keeps us close to our like Baharian cultural identity more in the sense of culture, less so religion. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you have these people that are like, oh, well, you're not even Jewish then. Like, oh, well, you know, you've completely abandoned your roots. And I think that that's such an unfair precedent, like standard to set because we're just trying to make it through, you know what I mean? But also for, like, I feel like religion is such a personal thing. And I yeah. think when you grow up in a space that's like heavily influenced by religion, of course, it's really difficult to be able to say that. But I think also the issue is when people, not you, but like when people use the word religion and say, your, your religion is Judaism. Why do you have a Christmas tree? My religion is not Judaism in the way that someone's religion is Christianity. I am a Jew through and through, no matter what I do, no matter how many Christmas trees I have, no matter what it, because being a Jew is not about a deity. It's not about what you practice or what you believe. It is your culture. It is your language. It is your ancestry. It is all of that. Obviously there are people who become part of the tribe and that is very different than they practice because that's the only way you could be part of an ethno religion, but you don't have to practice anything to be a Jew. I mean, I grew up with, a, you know, my Abba, I don't remember him ever having anything, Shabbat, yeah. Pesach, anything. And he is the, the loudest proudest Israeli Jew I've <laughs> ever met. Like literally has like, you know, the Israeli flag is like six, six by six feet freaking flying from his Jeep. I mean, this is just like the kind of person he is. And as he got older, he started to become very observant because his wife converted and she became, she converted through orthodoxy, right? But it's like, regardless, all those 30, 40 years that he didn't touch a Shabbat candle doesn't change his identity. And I think that's the problem is people are looking at it through this really Western whitewashed lens and not understanding that 
there is a difference between Judaism and Islam and Judaism and Christianity. You know, we are not just about practice, prayer and stuff like that. It's a beautiful part of it, but it's not all of it. And I think once we get, you know, realize that we are not a religion in a Western sense, people will start to understand that that's why interfaith families are really not doing anything any different than other multicultural people. It has nothing to do with God. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's really interesting that you brought that up because I never really thought of it that way as like, I guess like certain members of the Jewish community feeling the, or viewing religion from like a Western concept. Because yeah, when you think about it, like Jews, for example, just like from personal experience, like my ancestors or like my family back in Uzbekistan and like back in Central Asia, the word Jew was a loaded word and it was mm-hmm. literally printed on your passport on any form of identification. Nobody asked you if you kept Shabbat. Nobody asked you if you lit candles on Friday. You know what I mean? Right. So it wasn't, right. it was less performative, more of like an identity thing, a cultural identity, as opposed to, well, do you keep every single high holiday and do you fast on Yom Kippur? You know what I mean? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I stumbled on your page probably last year because of our mutual friend, Ruben Shimonov, who I actually just finished editing our episode. He's absolutely amazing with the work that he does. But aside of that, now that we've kind of transitioned into talking about your social media, I feel like the majority of your work on social media aims to like facilitate a conversation specifically surrounding like marginalized communities within the broader Jewish community. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have personally found that like members of Jewish spaces feel that they're incapable of participating in marginalization or racism or xenophobia because Mm -hmm. they are themselves a marginalized community, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel Mm -hmm. like you talk so much about that. I would absolutely love if you can like spread, give us some words of wisdom for the listeners. (laughs) So- to break it down simply, and then I'll even share a personal experience, right? You can simultaneously be oppressed and you can be privileged at the same time. You know, my husband always likes to give the example of how he clearly is oppressed in this country as a black man, but he's also privileged because he's a cisgendered male. And that right there gives him privilege over black women and trans women and, you know, things like that. So it's the same thing with if you're a Jew and you experience anti-Semitism, that doesn't mean that you also don't benefit from things like anti-Blackness or xenophobia. And this idea of that for me is really uncomfortable because growing up, as I said, I grew up with a Black father. I saw my mom's family who, again, had so much trauma tied to being Jewish from, you know, as they call it, the old country, but came here and adopted these ideologies of white supremacy in the form of anti-blackness and classism and elitism. And there was over a decade period where I didn't have communication with members of my family because they wouldn't come in the house because my dad was black. They wouldn't come to my wedding. They, you know, most of them we don't talk to anymore. The one that we did apologized and made amends, but it was like, I had to break down to them. Like you are still able to hurt someone regardless of if you are being hurt. And it's, it's, It's weird to me that people don't grasp that, but then I think this is my biggest problem within the community is people will not grasp that, but then they'll be like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah is anti-Semitic, even though they're marginalized. I'm like, yes, exactly. And you are anti-Black, even though you experience anti-Semitism. And I think it's really frustrating because they 
erase the fact that there are so many black Jews and black and Jewish families that are living between these intersections that have to navigate how to be safe in both of those spaces. And it's really hard. And so I'm just like, there's this hyper fixation on black people being anti-Semitic and, you know, POC being anti-Semitic and these weird narratives about class and access. And I'm like, there's just to me a lot of hypocrisy, you know, you can't talk about how anyone could be anti-Semitic and that then not acknowledge that you yourself can also be bigoted while experiencing anti-Semitism. And so I focus on that a lot because I feel like that is the key to true liberation for all marginalized peoples is when we all understand that we can both be oppressed and privileged at the same time. And by ignoring that, you're just basically upholding the systems that are put in place to do that, to hurt other people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even my biological father, he's a brown man, okay? My, my, my biological father walks this country 100% as a brown man. You would never, he's not, he's, there's no white passing, nothing. My kids were shocked the first time they met him because he was, they were like, Saba is as dark as we are. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And so I tried my, even my, my brother on, on my dad's side, we tried to explain to him, like, you are not white. You are not viewed as a white man. They're never going to accept you. That's number one. But when you align yourself with these peoples, because of X, Y, Z, you're upholding a system that not only harms people that look like you, but people like your grandchildren that are also black. And it's hard for him to understand because he's like, but Israel, and I'm like, yeah, that's great. This is the example of Trump, right? Mm -hmm. It's great that Trump supports Israel. Awesome. Which again, that's his opinion, not mine. I'm just kind of explaining how I tried to get him to move past that because I don't actually agree with that. And I'm like, but these are people that are tokenizing you as a Jew. They're tokenizing you as a brown person for their own agenda. And you are actively upholding the, the system put in place, not only to hurt yourself, but your grandchildren. And it was something he never understood. And that's actually why we did never reconciled again, because it, for me, it was, I was like, I can't do this. I can't, I can't have someone around me who actively denies and then partakes in a system that is every day hurting my children, my husband, my friends, my brothers, my, my stepfather. And so I think it's a really big problem within the community. And I think ultimately it goes back to assimilation. You assimilate for safety. Obviously a brown man like that with an Israeli accent can only assimilate but so much, but my mom's family looks white, so they could. And assimilation for safety comes at the expense of somebody else all the time. It's always gonna come at someone else's expense. And I think that's ultimately the problem that we're seeing right now is Jews who have assimilated, identify as white or uphold whiteness. And then you have Jews who are trying to de-assimilate and saying, we aren't white, which race and ethnicity are not the same, but that's another story. We're not white, we're Jewish. And I'm like, okay, but you still benefit from whiteness. And by you denying that you benefit from whiteness, you're upholding it. Look, you don't want to identify as white. Cool. Like, I, I, I don't have energy anymore to di- like argue about identification. I think it's more of like acknowledging that you're upholding those systems by doing certain things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, growing up, so my parents are both from Uzbekistan. I'm a first generation born American. My parents immigrated here in the wave of people that came in after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, okay. And For us, like my mom is very, very white passing. My dad, on the other hand, is definitely a little bit more brown. Growing up, I vividly remember on every single school application, every single standardized exam, she would say, fill in Caucasian. Like you are Caucasian. 
Mm. And I remember like then being in like when I was actually old enough, probably like when we were taking like the standardized exams for college or even like in school, I was like, why the fuck am I filling out Caucasian? Like I'm literally from Uzbekistan, like from Asia. Why am I filling out Caucasian? It didn't make any sense to me. And what I realized when I would bring up these questions and when I would bring up these concerns to a lot of my family, I feel like the immediate response is always like so hostile and negative Mm -hmm. because just like you were saying that the need of assimilation is like when they were in that really hostile and systemically anti-Semitic space in the Soviet Union and Uzbekistan and all of that, they needed to really fend for their lives and try to assimilate to Central Asian norms, whether that was culturally or linguistically. And then I feel when the shift and the migration happened to the US, I feel as though, although we are really tightly knit in our community and we are still in like a very Buharian niche space in New York City, despite that, I feel like they've almost assimilated into like the white passing white community in order to just like completely absolve themselves from any sort of potential marginalization. Do you know what I mean? I definitely do. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't grow up in that community. Like I said, I didn't even know that my grandmother was Bukharan until I was, until 2015. Yeah. All I knew, like, I knew she spoke Tajik. I knew she spoke Bukhari. I knew she spoke Arabic. and it, But I didn't know any of the, like, ins and outs. And, and I spoke to her all the time. But, you know, it was just something I didn't know. So I didn't grow up in that New York City community. I grew up in a much more, I grew up in Brooklyn, more, like, in neighborhoods that were non-Jewish, black and brown, and Ashkenazi Hasidim. But I see it in the same way with Ashkenazim in Brooklyn. It's You're visibly different, you're visibly other, but there's still an upholding of whiteness. There's still the calling the police on POC and black folks that are in the neighborhood that live right beside you. There's still the following them around your stores and using microaggressions and, and you know inappropriate words to describe people. So I think it's very similar. And I think that is, it's exactly what it is. It's like, well, we're other, but we don't want to be other, other. So we're going to partake in this system that creates the other, other. And it's like, I've actually heard Jews, you know, non-Black Jews say things like, well, at least I'm not Black. I'm just Jewish. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. hello? Like, what? And it's like, how do you not see that you are, you're partaking in the very system that you fled whether it was in Syria, in Samarkand, in Russia, those systems that they that you affected your family, same thing here, you know. So I definitely agree that it's it's a a problem within the the greater Jewish community. And in New York, I think it's like really bad, honestly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I totally agree. Speaking of which, so last summer, obviously when the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were kind of like at the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement and ultimately mass media as a whole. Living in New York, obviously, like my partner and I tried to do as much as possible in terms of donating resources of any kind, attending Mm -hmm. protests, marches, anything that we could. And I remember sitting with like family during the, the real, the thick of it, And at Friday dinner, at Shabbat dinner, and praying to everything holy that my family wouldn't make some sort of like horribly ignorant comment and just Mm -hmm. set it off. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in our community were 
participating in like really hateful and just honestly like just really disappointing rhetoric it mm-hmm. wasn't surprising but it was really disappointing yeah um but i think what i found even more irritating than that was the people in our community who were kind of like quote unquote supportive of the black lives matter movement and were in some ways speaking out against anti-blackness they were doing it from this really like convoluted perspective that mm-hmm. like their support for the black community was because of history's display of like the consistent relationship between the Jewish community and the black community. So you yeah. see all of these people posting photos of like Martin Luther King standing next to a rabbi and like all of that. And the only thing that would consistently come up in my mind is like, are you participating in the fight against anti-blackness because you genuinely believe in that? Or is it because you're just trying to fuel like a larger agenda? It's very performative and it's very transactional. It's very, well, you know, see, I'm doing this, so I possibly can't be racist. I think that was a lot. I unfollowed so many large Jewish pages during that time because I saw that you can really tell for me, and I'm not saying just individual people, Instagrams, but like people that have large, you know, platforms that call themselves activists or educators, you can really see when something is a performance. And Mm -hmm. to me, saying Black Lives Matter and never calling out anti-Blackness in your comments, never, you know, accepting criticism when you yourself say something anti-Black or use language that's inappropriate or, you know, culturally appropriate, et cetera. That shows me that you're not really actively fighting anti-Blackness. You are just performing. It's just so that you look like you're, you know, aware of what's happening and so that you don't get called on it. And I think that as a mother of black children, I rather you not say anything. I rather you just be quiet and be honest that you don't actually care because it just comes across like, okay, well I walked for you guys. So now when Jews are getting hurt, I want, it's like, that's not how it works. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely a problem with the silence on anti-Semitism and the double standard of criticizing Israel. These things are all real, but those things are separate from your fight against white supremacy in America. And they're separate from your fight against anti-Blackness, which is institutional. And I don't think, like the Martin Luther King pictures with Rabbi made me so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It just felt like a prop tokenization of this man that was ultimately killed by white supremacy. Yeah. And these are the same people that would criticize Malcolm X. And I'm like, so you don't actually care about black liberation. You just want a prop to perpetuate your own rhetoric. So um, I think it's important, you know, when people spot things like that, if you have the energy to call them out, cool. But if not, I just unfollow and I, and I just make it my business to really inspect people that I work with that I share their you know stuff because there's just a lot of it's just performance art (laughs) that's what I call it it's performance art yeah I think the word transactional is honestly like the most accurate description of it to be honest because it's almost like just like you were saying it's like oh well you gave me this like I guess I'll give I'll give that I'll give some of you so some Mm -hmm. little bit something back it is definitely really frustrating and I feel like it's it's difficult when people try to participate in that kind of performative activism, because then when you try to push the needle a little bit more forward and actually discuss the individuals who are doubly or triply struggling from intersectional marginalization, like 
trans black women or trans incarcerated black women or really like the most marginalized communities in our society that's like oh well that's a separate issue and I feel like what resonates with me specifically in like for example Kimberly Crenshaw's work where she said that in order to better society in general the only way to do that is to identify the most marginalized individual in a community and then try to figure out how to help that person Mm -hmm. because that is the only way that we'll actually identify the things that are like systemically wrong and just in rootedly like rooted wrongness that's in a community so yeah I mean it's really frustrating when people want to participate in like the discussion of like black liberation but they don't want to participate in like the discussion of that intersection with like queer rights or trans rights or any of that you know what I mean it's very Mm -hmm. it's all very like surface level it's also a lot of hypocrisy because just because you mentioned the Black Lives Matter march, what I saw was then a lot of people saying, oh, well, there were anti-Semites and anti-Zionists at the Black Lives Matter rally and Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter. And I was like, okay, here's the thing. One, BLM is a movement and an organization. Separate the two. But also just because some people were anti-Semitic does not represent Black people as a community, nor does it represent the movement as a community. Yet and still, these are the same non-Black Jewish people who will be like, oh, you can't blame all Zionists because that Zionist said mm. this. Like, okay, but you're doing that to someone else. You're at holding an entire movement accountable for the people that are weaponizing it or being harmful, but then you're saying not to do that to us. And I don't think that's fair. And again, for me, that hypocrisy is always rooted in racism. It, it's just a double standard. And the same way we can understand the double standard with anti-Semitism, I just find it mind-boggling that these same non-Black Jews are not able to identify and realize the double standard they have when it comes to black folks as well yeah 100 percent. i mean the entire situation is just really troubling and frustrating but i think that thankfully as a result of the work that creators like yourself and educators like yourself are doing in order to promote these conversations that are really difficult to have and I always say that the most difficult conversations are the ones that are actually worth having that with the help of that and with the help of all of the initiatives that you're starting we're definitely getting one step closer to you know seeing the future that we really want I hope so (laughs) I hope so I really I, I definitely hope so because I think that ultimately once I think once we get there, we're going to see so much, I think, I don't want to say anti-Semitism is going to go down, but the ignorant anti-Semitism, not the malicious anti-Semitism, but the anti-Semitism that people don't even understand why it's anti-Semitic, like the erasure and things like that is going to dissipate because we're going to be combating the myths with actual facts and representation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so grateful that you took the opportunity to come on here and have this conversation. I know that I'm literally blessed beyond compare. I'm so happy and I'm so glad that you were able to take some time out of your day and have this conversation. I'm sure that a conversation like this will promote the change that I personally want to see in the Baharian community, but generally in society as a whole. I agree. And I'm looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better too, and learning more about the community, just because like I said, I didn't really grow up submerged in it. So I'm really glad to do this and learn beside you as well. 